You're listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church, recorded at one of our worship services. Jacob will be preaching for us from Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 11. So let me read that for us. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the, f- the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and the glory and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. These are the true words of the living God. Thank you, Jacob. Caleb. All right. Shall we pray quickly? Uh, Let's pray. God, we ask you for help. We ask you to help us to focus on this beautiful text. Um, Help me as I deliver this word. Help all of us, uh, not just to believe, not just to be persuaded, um, but to respond to you by faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. That was a beautiful um, passage that was read for us earlier. Uh, Caleb also mentioned about land. And uh, devotional, um, as we uh, prepare our hearts for Good Friday and Easter, there would be a book table set up outside uh, the ballroom um, for anyone who would like to check out um, recommended books. Um, there will be some recommendation for uh, land devotions as well and some resources. Uh, so on your way out later on, um, please do not miss the book table. Just go there and check it out. Uh, and Caleb also mentioned there is a recommended devotion uh, this year, Journey to the Cross by Will Walker. You can actually find uh, copies of that outside at the book table, uh, as well as uh, right now, I have a copy to give away for whoever will raise their hands first. <laughs> that gentleman over there. <laughs> yes, come. <laughs> yeah. I was trying to be fair and cast my gaze throughout, um, but he was really the earliest. Did you anticipate that? Sort of. Okay, good. Yeah, well done. Great. Um, so, Philippians chapter 3. Beautiful passage, uh, familiar passage for many of us. The idea of counting what was uh, gained to him, he now considered them as loss compared to the surpassing worth of Christ Jesus. I titled my sermon, Learning How to Count with Paul. Uh, the outline is uh, one, two, three. One daily error, two corrections that we need, and three desired outcomes. So that's, that is the outline. Um, Singapore is famous not just for counting, I'm talking about math, so we are quite well known in the world for math syllabus. 
Uh, but there's something else about Singapore that is uh, pretty well known. It's our system of meritocracy. Heard of that? Meritocracy. Uh, simply put, it is the belief that people should be judged and rewarded based on their abilities, purely based on their abilities and their achievement. Uh, in other words, those who work hard, those who manage to perform within the boundaries of the system, they will be rewarded with greater opportunities than those who do not. And this is regardless of background. So everyone deserves a chance. It's not about um, what kind of um, family you were born into, uh, but if you have the talent, if you have the capability under this system, you are supposed to flourish. You are supposed to be successful. Um, in a speech delivered last year at IPS Institute of Public Policy by Minister Chan Chun Singh, this is what he said. Meritocracy has been and will continue to be a core pillar of Singapore's survival and success. It's a very strong language, right? You know, it, it has been for the past 50 over years of nation building and it will continue to be a core pillar of Singapore, not just about our success, not just about you know, having uh, more than enough, but survival. We need this to survive. Uh, I'm going to read a, a few lines of his speech. He says, Singapore has built a rule-based system. So this is not me saying, this is Minister Chan saying, rule-based system where people can connect, collaborate, and compete fairly. And this encourages talent across the world to want to commit their future to Singapore and do business with us because they know that under this system of reward and punishment, okay, or rather reward for those uh, who perform, they, will be re they know that they will be rewarded for the high quality of work that they produce. So this is the mantra, work hard, work hard, be diligent, do your best and be rewarded as you accomplish your results. Now this is why Singaporeans are very stressed, right? Uh, because we are constantly being assessed by our performance. We constantly need to strive to be number one, and if we are number one, we strive to remain as number one. If you drop from number one to number two, that would be considered somewhat a failure, right? Um, and then with that mentality, there is also a mindset, a mindset where we need to prove people wrong. We need to be strong. We need to, we need to you know, make sure that we are working really hard because the environment is always against us. There's all these you know, factors that are outside of our control, and as a country, we are small, we need to survive, we need to be strong, we need to work hard. Now, um, one of the best National Day Parade songs that captured this spirit was actually written in the year 1987, NEP song. I'm not going to sing for us, I'm going to read out for us <laughs> the lyrics. And I'm pretty sure that when I read out for us the lyrics, many of you from the older generation, you know which song I'm talking about. There was a time when people said that Singapore won't make it. But what's the next line? But we did, you know, and, and, and we, we have to say that with a sense of like holding your fist. There was a time when people say that you know, Singapore won't make it, but we did, right? Now, that captured the Singapore spirit in a nutshell, in a good way. And as we look around, as we consider the past 50 over years of nation building, it has brought success. It is a good system. It has worked by and large. Now, there are things that we can complain and you know, say there could be tweaked and improved about the system, but by and large, most Singaporeans are pretty happy with where we are today as a nation. So I don't disagree with what Minister Chan is saying. I agree with him. We are thankful for the system in many ways. It has flaws, but we are generally thankful. The problem is when we import meritocracy, meritocracy into the church and we assume that this is how we relate with God. Work hard and God will be pleased with you. Be a good boy. Be a good girl. 
behave yourself. Come to church on time. Don't commit serious sins that God will frown upon. Generally be a well-behaving boy and girl um, then he will be pleased with you. Uh, isn't that the assumption of many of us? Uh, especially uh, those who were brought up in a Christian environment, very conservative Christian environment. Uh, go, go to church since young. Um, I've surveyed, spoke to many of you who are brought up in Christian families, conservative Christian families, and the whole idea of the Christian faith to you is let me keep the rules. Let me prove myself to be a good Christian boy or girl. Because I'm Christian, and these are the rules that's been given to me to behave myself. I need to make sure that I keep those rules in order to be considered a good Christian. Now, if you are not a Christian, yes, that's probably also one of the uh, misunderstandings about church. Because I remember talking to some friends in the past, uh, when they found out that I'm a pastor, they were like, wow, what happened to you? Uh, and, uh, <laughs> and when I invite them to church, some of them may even say something like, you know, uh, I don't know what, what happened to you, but you know, uh, for, for me, I'm not the holy kind. I'm, I'm not able to go to church. Uh, if you know my life, if you know what's, what, what I'm into, you probably would not want to invite me to church. Church is the furthest place that I want to be associated with because I'm not good enough to you know, go to church. Uh, isn't it interesting that both within the church and perception outside the church, people view Christianity as work hard, behave yourself. God is here to reward the well-behaving children. And for those who do not miss the mark, you know, they are not as good. You know, meritocracy, they, 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 they are not rewarded. Now, if we adopt this same attitude to the Christian faith, that becomes a problem. And Paul, here in our text, is saying that that is called legalism. Legalism. And that is a, a single one deadly error that could destroy your faith if you allow this attitude to creep in, legalism. Now, let me just introduce this book a little bit. Uh, we are in the third chapter right now, Philippians chapter 3. It's been a wonderful letter so far, warm, loving. So later on, when you see some like uh, rebuking statement, there was one line that seems quite harsh. It doesn't seem to fit in well with the general tone of this letter. But here we have a transition in chapter 3. Let me read for us uh, the first verses in chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Um, by the way, this is, you know, have you heard of those old jokes about Paul of the news finally uh, and then there's still three more chapters or, or, or when, the, when the pastor said that uh, I'm just going to take one minute to wrap this up and they continue talking for another 30 minutes. Uh, now, this is not that, that joke, okay, by the way. Um, the, the word finally is literally, it means as for the rest. It is used as a point of transition uh, that Paul is about to transit to something else. So uh, he's transiting, and then he calls them to rejoice. And then he said, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Now, this is the verse that preachers can go to uh, for license to repeat ourselves. <laughs> because Paul is saying that he is repeating to the, the Philippians, uh, it is no trouble to him because it is good. It is safe for them. This is a little bit like your safety briefing every time you get onto a plane, right? No matter how many times you heard it, because you may never know if something could happen. Uh, what the airline does is you want to refresh your memories. In case something happened, this is good and safe for you to remember. For us as Christians, going back to the foundation of the Christian faith is really, really important. That's why church is like a weekly repetition of things that you know, but we need to know them again and again and again. Rejoice. And then he continues. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate 
the flesh. Uh, this is where it's like a little bit jarring. Like, oh, wow, Paul suddenly gets into a harsh tone. He's going on the offense. What's going on? Is he losing self-control and going to name-calling? Oh, does he have something against dogs? No, no, no. Dogs owners here, don't worry. Um, the word, I, I would say that these few phrases, dogs, evildoers, and those who mutilate the, the, the flesh, uh, is in some ways uh, really intelligent use of words. Let me explain a little bit. The word dogs is a phrase often used by legalistic Jews to describe Gentiles. And the point is this, that God has set apart and chosen a covenant people, the nation Israel. And they are those who you know, live in his house as his children and the dogs are kept outside. They are kept outside. Israel, they are the included one. The rest of the nations, they are excluded. Now remember, Paul is fighting for this notion that the gospel is for all. All languages, all tribes, all nations, all peoples. By faith, in the name of Jesus Christ, because of His grace alone. And he is saying that if you believe in that message, we are the chosen one, we are the children, and they are the dogs. That is what he's saying. He's not you know, using the word dogs as some kind of insult. He is purposeful in choosing these words. Evil doer. Now, the Pharisees, uh, most of them, they don't wake up early in the morning you know, thinking about what kind of evil I want to commit, uh, what, what kind of wicked deeds. No, no, no. They, they, they wake up in the morning and they are obsessed with how can I keep the law every single day. That's what the legalistic Jews, the, the, the Pharisees, they were obsessed with. And Paul is shocking them by saying, you think you are righteous? You are evil doer. You are evil doer because... These things that you're doing, they end up blocking you from seeing who Jesus is. In fact, you guys are the one that when God descended, incarnated, made himself as one of us in, in the flesh, you crucified him. That would be his argument. You committed evil in your pursuit of so-called righteousness. Now, this is uh, the... the uh, it reached some kind of um, crescendo that mutilate the, the, the flesh. Now, can you imagine how insulting this is? Because the Jews, they were pushing for circumcision. They were, they were saying that, it is, it's, yeah, it's good to believe in Jesus for your righteousness, but you also need to be circumcised. And Paul is saying that this is not circumcision, this is mutilation. Wow, that's really, really harsh. Now, can you see the purposeful choice of words here? That Paul is trying to make a strong point to these guys. That you think you're heading the right direction, you are moving in the opposite direction of what righteousness is. And in contrast with the next verse, you guys are the mutilation, and in verse 3, for we are the circumcisions. We are the circumcision. All of us who believe in God by faith because of the grace of Jesus Christ, we are the true circumcision. We are the one who worship by the Spirit of God. We are the one who glory in Jesus Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. Even though there's no physical mark on our body, we are the true children of God. And we do not need that mark, that sign of the covenant that was given to Abraham because now we have a new and better covenant where the circumcision happens in our hearts. We are convicted to love God and to trust in Him and to worship Him in the Spirit. And then Paul continues his argument. Now guys, in case anyone thinks that he has reasons for confidence in the flesh, this is where Paul gets into this weird boasting. 
I have more reason to be confident. Circumcised on the eighth day, the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, the Hebrew of Hebrew, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Wow. Paul went into boasting mode. He was boasting about his credential, his uh, religious CV. Um, he was circumcised on the eighth day. What, what does that mean? This is according to Leviticus chapter 12. Uh, Paul is talking about, and in fact, this is quite interesting because when he talks about his birthright, when he talks about the environment that he was born in, what his parents has did to him when he was a baby, Paul is not talking about, you know, uh, I deserve it because I've done that. You know, it can't be like, you know, he was five days old and then he said, I want to be circumcised on the eighth day. No, he, he's talking about something that he inherited, given to him. But this is according to the law. He was a blood descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And as to the people that God made a covenant with in the Old Testament. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. You could trace his uh, bloodline up to this distinguished tribe. Benjamin was distinguished by the fact that it gave Israel their very first king, Saul. And if you go to Israel right now, you go to Jerusalem, um, that is actually within the boundaries given to the tribe of Benjamin uh, when the, the, each tribe was given land. So Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin was viewed in a very positive way among all the 12 tribes. Hebrew of Hebrew, like a, like a real Jewish, but not Hellenistic, Greek-speaking Jews, but he, he has this cultural pride. He's a Hebrew of Hebrew. As to the law, he's a Pharisee. That means he's one of the religious elites of his days. They have separated themselves from ordinary tasks and simply given themselves to follow the law, to the most minor details of the law. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, Paul is saying, I'm, I'm not just one of those people who get into a room and discuss theology and, and you know, get captivated by good rigor, um, doctrinal debates or discussion. No, no, no. I, I, I don't just talk. I walk the talk. When, when, when you talk about zeal, here is a man who went all out to work out his faith in the most radical way. He persecuted the church of Jesus Christ it was because it was perceived as a form of heresy during the first century. So Paul went all the way. He was radical. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. What a statement. Now, how many of you can raise your hands and say, yeah, these are things that I, I also accomplish, and that's why I am righteous before God. Now, Paul is saying that if anyone could count their righteousness by both religious and social credits, Paul himself would be ahead of all of us. Now, um, why am I going on and on about this? What's, what's my point, right? Yeah, how, how applicable is it for us? Because um, if I were to apply that to the context of RHC, I cannot remember the last time someone had a discussion with me about the need for circumcision, for example. <laughs> uh, it doesn't seem that relevant uh, in our context, but why are we going on and on about something like this? Um, let me just say this to us. Now, legalism is actually deeply rooted in all of us. And uh, the problem is not just about you know, being born in a Singapore environment where we are told to work hard all the time. No, it, it goes all the way back to the fall. That from that point on, we start to, instead of looking at God, we curve for inward to look at ourselves, what we can do in order to commend ourselves before God. And we look horizontally as well to see what we can get from other people in order to make ourselves feel validated, feel belong, to get a sense of worth. Now, 
Um, let's just do a couple of litmus tests to see whether there are any legalists among us. I'm going to ask a few questions and see, or rather I'm going to make a few statements and uh, see whether that connects with us. Um, have you ever had this feeling that before I pray to God for something really, really important, for something that I really, really, really want, I make sure that I behave myself for at least a good couple of weeks. So those two weeks, I make sure that I fight sins. I'm ruthless with sins. I uh, repent. We, I uh, you know, come to church on time. I attend CG. I do everything that is right. That's the build-up to me wanting to come to God and ask Him for something that I really, really, really want. You don't need to raise your hands. I sometimes struggle with that. In fact, on weeks that I'm preaching, I'm like, yeah, I, I need to behave myself more this week yeah, because I'm <laughs> preaching the word. It's confession, really. Really, um, so true, right? It's, it's so subtle. Um, how about this? Something bad happened to me. Really, really bad. I just, you know, you go through something terrible and then you start to recall the past year, you have not been a great Christian and then these thoughts just somehow creep in. Maybe God is punishing me. I've not behaved myself, you know. I've not been such a good Christian. I've been a hypocrite in all these ways. I have not fulfilled all the things that I say to God that I would do. And maybe these horrible things that just happened to me last week, that was God punishing me. Wow. Now, isn't it fascinating that you and I, if I were to ask you to feel of, you know, what you believe, do you believe in salvation by grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone? I'm pretty sure that most of us, especially if you're members of REC and we talk about gospel all the time, you probably think, yes, I believe in that. But in your outwork, can you see? that we can be still so legalistic in our tendency, in the way we view God, in the way we view ourselves. Now, if you're not a Christian and you're seated here and you're thinking that, oh, I'm left off the hooks because Jacob is just talking about all the different, um, you know, religious legalism, um, let me tell you, if you don't have a vertical dimension of a God that you're relating with, you end up looking horizontally for those same things and it's still transactional it will still be crushing. It will still be disappointing. A uh, couple of examples. Uh, if you are someone who is fully invested in your career, your career defines you. You feel very, very strongly that this is your meaning in life, a specific call, a specific career, a specific job. If you work very, very hard and your boss is happy with you and you climb up the ladder, you, you feel a sense of fulfillment for a short while. Because uh, that very standard that you are trying to live up to is something that you are constantly pursuing. And your worth is only as high as uh, your last performance review. The next performance review, you need to keep up. You need to keep up. You need to keep proving yourself. Eventually, you'll still be crushed. Eventually, when there's failure that happens, you'll still be disillusioned. Now, that is assuming that it works for you. What if it doesn't work for you? What do I mean by that? You work hard. You are faithful in your job. And you notice that that guy who doesn't work as hard gets ahead of you because of some connection with someone. I, I do not know, you know, sometimes office politics. Or um, in the corporate setting, sometimes performance appraisal process, while it's supposed to be objective and measure performance, we know that it's designed imperfectly. And there are people who work really, really hard. But it's just not captured in the way those performance indicators are meant to capture and the sense of like the system has failed me. 
Now, can you see? In some ways, you are relating to something and, and looking for some kind of validation and feeling disappointed, feeling crushed. But if that's you today, you are non-Christian and you are like, you know, those things that I mentioned, it applies to you. Can I just pause for a moment and say that the reason why it doesn't work for you is not because of the system, but because you were created by a God in whom you long to love and to be loved. He's the only one who can give you a sense of meaning and purpose. You are created to know that intrinsically there is worth in you, that you are lovable, and that's not dependent on your performance. And if that's you, and today uh, you would like to respond to the good news, um, we'll be very, very glad to protest with you more. Um, my next point, two correction. So Paul, uh, he goes on from verse 7 on the two, there's two correction. I, I, I actually got inspired um, in this sermon by a Charles Spurgeon sermon that was preached in 1877. And it was titled, A Business-like Account. And he made an uh, observation that the apostles used the word cow a few times. And he speaks like a businessman. He speaks like a, a, an accountant. He casts up his accounts with caution, observed with diligent eyes and calculation his losses and his gains. He has like the debit side and the credit side. And Paul is adding and subtracting and he's counting and balancing with quiet and you know, sharp minds. And uh, you know, the Spurgeon actually commend this text to a businessman <laughs> in, in one of the lines in the sermon. Um, but verse 7 to verse 9, this is what we see. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. Paul counted those things that he mentioned, that he boasted in, as loss for the sake of Christ. Verse 8, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Righteousness from God. The two corrections that we need to see here in this text is we need to look at our own self-accomplishment and learn to count them as losses. That's the first thing. Second thing is we need to look at Jesus and view Him and know Him rightly as the one who is worthy as the all-surpassing gain in all our life. Now, let's just talk about the first part, seeing self-accomplishment as losses. Look at the way Paul described, counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And then he goes on to say, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. So what's the point that he's trying to make here? This is not just a piece of worthless junk that you, uh, you see in your house and you don't mind it taking up a corner and every time when you go there, it's like worthless, but you can somehow walk around it and be okay with a worthless piece of junk sitting somewhere at a corridor. Now this, according to Paul, is not that. It is actually a trash that needs to be taken out. You need to clear it out. It's, it's not just something with uh, $0 worth that you just leave sitting around in your home. It is something that will have a negative effects in your home if you allow it to continue to stay there. It is a rubbish. Uh, in fact, the original uh, language, the word that was used here is a lot more offensive. It actually refers to dung. It actually refers to bodily discharge. Something that is worthless and viewed in the most negative light. Now, this is how Paul describes our self-righteousness. 
If that's us, if your sense of you know, standing before God is dependent on your good behavior, here is what Paul is telling us. View these things as losses. Take them out the same way that you bring out the trash. The day that you receive into God's kingdom, He's not going to uh, do an you know, interview with you and ask, so how hard have you worked in church? How many times were you rostered for the kiss mean? How uh, often are you, uh, you know, on an overseas mission trip to serve the poor, to do this and to do that? No, it's not. I mean, those things are an important outwork of who we are as believers. But guess what is the one thing that allows you entrance into His kingdom? Christ Jesus. That's the same for you and that's the same for me. I will not be able to boast in my job, in my accomplishment as a pastor, in what I've done for RAC. No, it will just simply be, let's go back to the basic, it will simply be, I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe in, in, in the name of Jesus. And on that basis, God received me as a justified sinner. Now, seeing Christ as all-surpassing gain, the foundation for Paul is in what Christ has done for him. He is emphasizing a personal relationship with Christ Jesus. Which, is, which should be at the center of the Christian life. He joyfully accepted the loss of all things, count them as lost, so that he could gain Jesus. He's enjoying. He's delighting in who Jesus is. He's savoring. He never gets tired and bored about telling people about how good Jesus is. That's the Apostle Paul. And he is saying to us that that's the normal Christian life. He's not these elite Christians showing to us that this is the next level Christianity. Can I remind us that this is basic, everyday Christianity, counting everything as loss and Jesus as surpassing worth. At this point, I just want to make a quick clarification um, in case um, uh, some of us uh, assume that what we are saying is that the law is bad, you know, we should not have the law. You know, some, some of you may even have this wrong idea that you know, when you go to the Old Testament, all those laws in Leviticus, you can actually take your marker, black marker, and erase them off, you know, cover them up with your black marker, or you know, just remove that whole entire book from, from the Bible. No, we're, we're not talking about that the law is used. The law, there's, there's a place for the law. The law is precious. The law is really, really precious. The law tells us, number one, we cannot save ourselves. When you look at the standard, that's something that we all know. Um, the law, this is not that obvious. The law also points us to the character of God. For example, the moral law. Do not steal, do not commit adultery, do not murder. Now those things, because that is who God is, because of who He is, we want to be like that. You know, that, that is who God is, that's my maker, and therefore I want to be uh, someone who reflects His image. Yeah. Now the law, including some of the feasts, the dietary restrictions, some of the festivals, I have not studied them properly, but I know that if you study them properly, you would discover that there is so much in there that tells you about the character of God. It's beautiful, it is spectacular. Um, the sabbatical law, for example, which um, I actually think that in the context of REC, if we take the sabbatical law a lot more seriously, it's going to be really, really good for us, for example. Don't throw that away and say that because righteousness by faith, so all those things don't matter. No, those things still tell us who God is and His character. And there's still much wisdom as we observe some of those law. Now, again, we don't observe those law because they will be counted as righteousness to us. You get it? We don't do that. But there is a freedom in us engaging with some of those laws. Uh, last year, I remember for the first time, as we were building up to Good Friday and Easter, 
Um, the night before Good Friday, um, even my wife um, decided to like, do a mini sort of Passover type of feast for us. Uh, not the full one, which is like tons of things to observe, um, but we simply included a lamb dish in our dinner before uh, Good Friday. That was beautiful. Going through the scriptures on the Passover, you know, in the book of Exodus, savoring the lamb, and, and then also reminding the children and myself that at, at the Last Supper, there was no lamb dish on the table because the lamb was seated with the people at the table. Now, our hearts were just moved, really, really moved by observing just a shadow of the Passover feast among our, our family. So, point is, uh, do not despise the law. Let's not despise the law. There's much wisdom in the law, uh, but uh, they don't add to our righteousness before God. What is the good news? How does our righteousness come to us? The law revealed to me that I need a saviour. The standard of the law tells me that I am not able to accomplish it by my strength. It tells me, before it gets to the good news, it tells me the bad news that I'm in deep trouble. That I, in and of myself, is not able to fulfill them. That I'm not a good person without in my heart. That I need a saviour. I need Jesus Christ. And that God came to save sinners of which I am the worst. And Jesus came to live the, that perfect life, that law-keeping life, that perfectly law-keeping life that you and I cannot live and died the horrible death that you and I as lawbreaker deserve to die. And then on the cross, there's that divine exchange substitute where we receive the righteousness of Jesus and He took on our sins and he died. And then that's not the end of the story. What happened? He went to the grave because he is God, because he is righteous. The grave cannot contain him. And he bursts out from the grave. He defeats sins and death. There is a resurrection. And you and I, now there is hope. Hope for salvation, redemption, restoration, and hope of the resurrection. Death will not have its final word. Jesus as the final words. Now, Christians are those who relate to Jesus Christ as a personal saviour, as the one that we love and worship. Christians are not those who relate with this impersonal system of reward and punishment. But our faith informs us that we are called to relate to a person. Now, how does that look like when you relate with Jesus as a real person, as a real saviour in your life? How does that look like when Jesus is viewed as the all-surpassing gain? Let me read for us uh, just a few lines from this book um, that was adapted from a podcast series by uh, Ray Ogland and Sam Aubrey. It's called You Are Not Crazy. Uh, it says in uh, one of the chapters, I think this is in the chapters of The Welcome of Christ, it says, whatever darkness inside of you that troubles your heart, whatever capacities for wickedness and stupidity that lurks within, whatever still haunts you from your past, however fearful you are, that you will never change Know this, your sin does not intimidate Jesus. Wow. What is right in Him far outweighs what is wrong in you. Wow. There is more grace in Him than guilt in you. Listen to this church. He is better at saving you than you are at sinning against Him. It is at the point where all of us feel the most disgusted. I think disgusted is a strong word, but yes, we have to feel disgusted about ourselves, the most hopeless 
and the most worthy of judgment. It is in our worst defilement that we find Jesus the most tender and gracious towards us, the most beautiful and magnificent. Now, for those of us who have believed and trusted in Jesus, this is how we relate with Him. We are moved to tears each time when we think about how good and how gracious He is. Now, does this good news move your heart? Sinners and sufferers here, are you reminded today that, you know, Christ is gain and that we can count everything as loss compared to the surpassing worth of Christ? If that's you today, you are a Christian. You believe. You trusted in Jesus. And that's the mark of the new circumcision in the Spirit, mark of the new covenant. From there, we can press in and trust God for three desired outcomes. Those are in the two um, verses at the end, verse 10 and 11. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His suffering, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Knowing Jesus. Knowing Him and the power of His resurrection. Now, the, the way Paul talks about knowing Christ, knowing Jesus and His power, it's not the same as you um, knowing facts that you can recall when you are answering uh, a quiz. It's not talking about that. Yes, you know, it, it involves knowledge, but it's more than that. Yeah. It is not just a truth to know and to believe, but it is a person that we experience and walk with closely. Now, it is at this point that I just want to slow down and address. Uh, so, so the three things... Three internal outcomes are to know Him, to share His suffering, and to attain the resurrection. Now, the idea about knowing Him, you know, we have a church uh, here that is, uh, I don't know whether you guys know about the reputation of RIC. It's a youngish church. Uh, it's an intellectual church. Uh, someone actually told me the other day that, oh, yeah, I spoke to someone that I go to RIC, and my friend said, oh, yeah, it's that church that is very intellectual, right? You know, it's supposed to be a compliment, but I don't know why I felt very offended when I heard it. Uh, it's, like, it's very intellectual. Okay, what does that mean? Uh, very intellectual. Now, let's just clarify, right? Uh, it, our faith needs to be more than intellectual, but not less. Is that okay? It has to be more than intellectual, but not less. And Paul is not ashamed of it. He repeats his, his doctrines and teaching and preaching the word. He just repeats again and again. And we're not shy about it. We really, really think that part of good discipleship is knowing God accurately, rightly, go to His word. It's not just about your emotion and how you feel and what the word tells you. We need to establish truth from the unchanging, from the trustworthy Word of God, the Bible. So um, we are not ashamed and shy about the need for theology. But it has to be more. Yeah. It has to be more. Yeah. Which means that RSC, that's something that we need to guard against, right? Because we are intellectual. Right? I don't know whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. Um, but it's probably a good thing. In some ways, we have the foundation to press in even more and ask God, God, now that we know, how can we translate this to heart? and hands. How do I view the world through the eyes of Jesus? How do I love and serve others? How do I trust Him for real change? I really, really believe that God is doing a wonderful work in our church. I don't think it's fair to say that we are just an intellectual church. I really, really see the fruit of the Spirit at work in our church. But let's continue to press in to know Him and the power of His resurrection. By the way, the word know here is the same word in Genesis. You know, Adam knew Eve. It's talking about intimacy. He's talking about really, really walking closely with someone and knowing them. So church, let's press in to that, to know Christ and the power of His resurrection, to share in His suffering, 
First thing to say is uh, suffering is to be assumed. We live in a broken world. So we all suffer, right? Um, doesn't mean that just because you're more spiritual, therefore you suffer less. In fact, it's the, probably the opposite because when we look at Paul's life and Jesus' life, it's full of suffering and affliction. We live in a broken world, fallen world, and suffering is to be received as a norm. And even if you're not suffering right now, you're going through a good time, your health is good and everything, it's just a matter of time that, that you lose all those things that you, you know, derive your confidence and your joy in. So we live in a broken world, and Paul Tripp puts it this way about you know, sharing in Christ's suffering. He said that no one ever said that I, I had some of the easiest, sweetest years in my life just walk in the park. And through those easiest years, I just come to know Jesus so much more deeply. I've grown so much in my faith. No, no, no one ever said that. In fact, it's the opposite. If you think about your life, it's in those hard, difficult, even hopeless moments. And many of us will probably look back on hindsight and mark those darkest, difficult moments when tears seems normal on a daily basis. And you look back, wow, those were the moments that I remember Christ the most sweetly because He was so near. He was so gracious. He was so kind. He was so empathetic. He was so sweet in those moments. Knowing Jesus sharing in his suffering. And as we draw near to Jesus, it changes the way we view our suffering and our affliction. It gives us meaning and purpose. Finally, to attain the resurrection. Remember, Paul was in prison. This is no longer the young Paul. He's uh, you know, older now. He knew that he was going to die. As he, you know, do, as he does his spiritual audit that led him to you know, discounting exercise, uh, what matters to him the most is resurrection hope. Resurrection hope. That I may attain the resurrection from the dead. He's looking at the grave. The grave is inside. I'm going to die. I'm looking ahead and I know that you know, being dead is a reality that I cannot avoid. But here's my hope. There is a life that comes out from the grave. There is a resurrection because Jesus is my forerunner, my saviour. He has gone through death and come out from the other side. I share in that victory. I'm going to delight in the resurrection. Now, again, being a youngish church, because most of us are not like at, a, at a stage where, oh, I'm going to die in the next few years. Um, most of us actually don't, don't think that way when we wake up in the morning, right? Um, but let's build a spiritual discipline to always consider death. You know, in some other countries, uh, when you walk into a church, in a church building, um, Often, you know, there's like a sanctuary and there's a yard. You know, when you walk through the yard into the sanctuary, uh, often in many places, you actually have to pass through grave. And I think that's a, such a precious reminder that we're all going to die as we come before our Maker and our Savior. Um, I say this during the last service, and I'm going to say this carefully right now. Uh, I, I turned 43 yesterday, and I'm not fishing for happy birthday wishes, by the way, just, just to make it clear. Uh, I woke up this morning as a fresh 43-year-old man, and I look at the mirror this morning uh, as I woke up and was preparing myself to leave the house. Uh, I was a little bit sad, like, you know, like you're getting older. It's like 40-plus right now. How many more years left? Counting the years. And what I say to the man in the mirror this morning is, Jacob Ng, you mustn't put your confidence in the flesh. You mustn't put your confidence in the flesh. The flesh is so weak. Our days are so finite. We're all going to die. 
43 years passed by just like that. You know, another, I don't know how long I have, you know, but let's be real, right? And just remembering that what I have that is far better than physical health and temporal joys is that I have resurrection hope. Jesus, I have resurrection hope. Is it too abstract as we talk about these things? Maybe some of you are still wondering, like, what does that mean? I still find it really, really hard to apply. Yeah. There lies the secret of the Christian faith that we are all supposed to find out. <laughs> Walking with Jesus, loving Him, trusting Him. So in closing, let's do an exercise. Let's count. Paul has taught us how to count. And verse 7, whatever gain I had, I counted as lost. That's past tense. He's looking back 30 years ago, when Paul first became a Christian, he counted that Christ is worth it. Everything else is lost. 30 years later in verse 8, now I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So uh, if you were to ask him 30 years later, 30 years before, what's the difference? He would probably tell you that his conviction has increased. Christ is even more worthy. Just think about it. This is a man who has been through some of the worst things in life, right? And he's telling us that Jesus is worthy. Why don't we just take the new, next 30 seconds or so, just apply that to ourselves. Is Christ still worthy? You know, consider the reason for you coming to faith. Some of you were recently baptized. You gave a testimony about, you know, I was this, now I found Jesus. Uh, the, those Christians who are further down the line will tell you that we keep going back to those few idolatry and brokenness and we keep having to discover again and again the wonderful preciousness of Christ. I also want to affirm some of us who have considered many things of the world as losses because you treasure Jesus. I know that in light of um, Chinese New Year, in just, is it next week? I, I'm so busy that I do not know whether it's next week. I think it's next week, right? Next, next, next week or something like that. Um, uh, you, know, you, are, you could be bracing for times with your insensitive relative who may ask you those silly questions again, right? You know, why are you not dating someone? Uh, when are you getting married? If you're married, when are you having kids? and things like that. You know, let's, let's remember that those things, as believers, as Christians, they no longer define us. We have something far, 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 far more precious, Jesus himself. And there are those here, seated here, you, you have actually given up your rights for certain relationship because you have found Jesus to be of surpassing worth. Some of us who are seated here, you may have given up your sexuality because you prize Jesus more than that, more than everything else. And I just want to remind you that it is worth it. And God is pleased with you as you look to Jesus and continue to do your counting. That these are losses. Yes, these are real losses. And it hurts when I count those losses. But compared to the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ, now I count them as losses and rubbish. Let's go to God in prayer. Father, I, I pray for this church. I pray for myself. I pray for all of us. I really, really pray for a love and a zeal to know you. We pray that you help us uh, to look to you, to trust in you. And whenever the things of the world remind us again that we may not measure up based on those yardsticks, or even at times our own desires reminding us of how painful it is 
for certain longings to go unmet remind us that we receive something far, far more precious, Jesus. And I pray for this church that we will all experience in greater depths the sweetness of Jesus in our sorrows, in our difficulties, in our dark times that we are going through. May we find ourselves drawing closer and closer to Jesus and truly considering Jesus as the surpassing worth in our life. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church. You can find more of our sermons online at www.rhc.org.sg.